Hello, I'm Megha Mohan and you're listening to BBC Trending, the show where we take a look at the stories that matter on social media. It's been 12 months since the world first heard of a three-year-old Syrian boy from Kobani. The horrifying image of his lifeless body on a Turkish beach soon went viral and what an impact it made. And we'll also be looking at why some couples in Shanghai are rushing to get divorced. Now, I'm joined in the studio by trending hero Mukul Devichar. OK, I assume, of course, by that you mean hero as in the type of sandwich bread popular in the US, in which case, yes, hello. And also by Ruha Chienju. Hello. And also, for the very last time, another trending legend, Anne-Marie Tomchak, who will bring us, for the final time, a look at some of the other stories that have caught our eye online. Isn't that right, Anne-Marie? Uh, Anne-Marie, can you hear me? Okay, so apparently listening to music with her headphones on is far more important at this time, but given it's her last day at the BBC, we'll leave her alone for a bit. Ruha, you've got a story from Shanghai, so tell us, what's been trending there? Well, there was one topic that dominated conversation on social media networks in Long Weibo. And believe it or not, it is divorce. Divorce? Why? Well, over the last few days, the marriage registration offices were overrun with what looked like happy couples but are desperate to be legally separated. Mm. And even more strangely, these couples aren't fighting over who gets to keep the property. In each case, we're seeing one partner eager to give property away to the other. In Shanghai, first-time buyers need a 30% deposit to buy a property, but people buying a second home need somewhere between 50% to 70%. It's a rule that the government brought in to cool the housing market and make it a bit easier for first-time buyers to compete. But from time to time, there are tougher policies to control property speculation and rising home prices. Mm, but what's all that got to do with divorce? Well, it seems that some couples who already have a property but want to buy a second one are getting divorced. One partner keeps the original property and the mortgage, and the other person is free to buy another property as a first-time buyer, gaining the benefit of paying lower deposit. So what people care the most is about investment. Legal separation doesn't really matter. And people do believe they would still be together. And you, you can see the people's attitudes towards marriage and divorce are changing in China. Divorcing to take advantage of a property loophole. Now, that's quite extreme. But is this a new thing? Well, the practice has been going on for some time. But based on a rumour and the rumour that has been officially denied, divorce rate have shot up. That's why it's been trending this week. According to the rumour, a new rule could mean that couples will have to be divorced for a year before they can take advantage of the property loophole. On Xinlang Weibo, people are using hashtag, which translates as Shanghai Divorce and Buying Property Trend. It has been used 240,000 times. And you said there's been an official denial of this. Yes, that's right. The government has denied it, but people don't trust them. So many people panicked at the rumour, and they think they only have a few days left to react. So they are still rushing ahead with their divorces. And some people got divorced in the morning and signed a property deal in the afternoon. 
It was only a rumor, but perfect happy couples appear to be getting divorced before this supposed rule comes into place, and they believe they must by now, in case officials change their policies again. So I talked to a Shanghai estate agent, Peng Jinglin, and I asked him what was going on there. The rumors that the new regulation will come into force in September. That's why couples are in a rush to get divorced and buy a second property. And how are people reacting to this rumor? When there's policy, there's a way to deal with it. I think 95% of them are fake divorces. Maybe 5% are real. This may not only happen in Shanghai. Some other smaller cities also have restrictions on numbers of property that people can own. Those are astounding numbers, but are they plausible? Well, I don't know about those percentages, but there has been a spike in property purchases and divorce rates. So, according to Shanghai Real Estate Trading Center's data, in the last few days, four times more properties were sold than euro, and that broke the record. And in Jing'an, divorce office reported a thousand. Percent increase in request. So on 30th of August, 108 divorce cases had been dealt with, but in a quiet normal day, there were less than 10 couples. Quite a lot of numbers there. And someone who lives in London, I am no stranger to this kind of frenzy over property. Now, is something similar happening in Shanghai though? Yes, exactly, Mega. It's really fast-paced, and the house price has been constantly increasing over the last ten years. I spoke to Pei Zhangping. He's been buying and selling properties in Shanghai. The housing market is crazy at the moment. I sold a property early this year. The house was 10 million yuan, and it's gone up 40 percent. So another four million yuan. The buyer made a very good profit. The government keeps saying house prices will go down, but it never happens. Ten million yuan. Now, how much is that in pounds? Well, it's a little over a million pounds, or equivalent to one point five million US dollars. So, what does that mean for people with a more modest income? Let's take a middle school teacher, for example, in Shanghai. They might earn around one thousand pounds a year. A two-bedroom property would be at least thirty thousand pounds. So that's thirty times their annual salary. It's impossible for them to buy something. I caught up with Wen Jiaqi. He works as an assistant manager in the company, and he moved to Shanghai six years ago, and still can't afford his first home yet. I'm not. I can't afford to buy a property. My whole family would have to make a huge effort just for me to be able to get a deposit. Who do you think is responsible for all of this? I believe the government should be blamed. They should be able to adjust the market. Well, Wen Jiaqi being very honest there, Ruha. Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, from one story about divorce to another, and frankly, this one is just as sad. BBC Trending's international treasure, Anne-Marie Tomczak, is leaving us for pastures new. No. Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie. Yes. 
trying to say goodbye? Oh, um, oh, sorry. Sorry, Mega. Uh, I just had my headphones on. You're here to do Trends of the Week, right? Yes, yes, of course. Um, we have lots of big stories for you this week. Um, one of them is all about how to chat up women wearing headphones. Mm, I've heard about Dan Bacon. Yes. Uh, so this is the Australian pickup artist who supposedly charmed the internet with a, a blog post all about how to pick up women who are wearing headphones. Um, there isn't a huge amount to it. It basically involves waving your hands until she takes the headphones off. Some people didn't respond too well to his wisdom. They thought it sounded a bit creepy. Um, so they offered him some alternative tips for talking to women with headphones on, such as making a podcast, for example. Uh, others suggested that he wander away into the sea. Well, we're going to move away from what women have in their ears to what they might wear on their face. Um, Alicia Keys, the singer and songwriter, she caused quite a stir when she appeared at the MTV Music Video Awards ceremony because she wasn't wearing any makeup. And she's done this before, right? With yeah, people she's, commenting? she's been wearing no makeup for a mm. while now. Um, but some people thought it was great. Lots of people said it was annoying and that she'd gone too far. What did Alicia say to this? She sent a tweet saying that she doesn't wear makeup, but she's not anti-makeup. Okay, so what's next? Anything more uplifting? This is actually my favourite story of the week. Uh, It's about a letter arriving at a small farm in Iceland because the letter didn't have an address on it. So how did it get there? Well, the sender couldn't remember the address, so instead they decided to draw a map on the envelope showing where they thought it was. They wrote that the place was on a horse farm with a, a lovely couple and three kids and lots of sheep. Oh, and the postman figured it out from that. Could have been anywhere, couldn't it? <laughs> this week sees the first anniversary of the death of Alan Kurdi. He was the three-year-old Syrian boy from Kobani whose body was found washed up on a Turkish beach. A photograph of the dead toddler became the symbol of the deadly journey made by thousands who flee war. Now, Mukul, you followed that story as the editor of BBC Trending, but a year on, you've been asking some hard questions about the viral trend. Yeah, that's right, because for me, Mega, what happened here goes to the heart of the question which I wonder about a lot, which is there's all of the social media activity that we report on here. Does Mm -hmm. it really have an impact or change anything in the real world? That picture was heartbreaking and the facts of the story were heartbreaking. Alan's four-year-old brother, Ghalib, and their mother, Rahana, also drowned. Their father, Abdullah, survived. He is in Iraq. It came at a moment where hashtags like Refugees Welcome had already begun to trend. We reported on how that had surged just the morning before Alan actually died. But once the picture emerged, ordinary social media users voted with their share buttons to make Alan Kurdi's death the issue. Within 12 hours, that image had been seen by 20 million people around the world on social media, and that forced newspapers and blogs like ours to publish the image too. That frenzy built so fast. If you remember, it felt rather like a sort of a a moment, Mm. a turning point almost. But there was a particular context at that time that I think we've got to acknowledge as well. Now, Europe had certainly not laid out a refugees' welcome mat on its shores. And there was an active debate about how many people displaced by conflict Europe could or should accommodate. But Alan Kurdi's photo seemed to stop that debate. 
briefly. Yeah, it felt like the stories of Syrian refugees had at least gathered a new level of global attention. And the most striking moment for me personally came in December, which is when I spoke first to Alan's Canadian resident, Aunt Tima Kurdi. And she said, my dead nephew's picture saved thousands of lives. So that's what she felt, but did it make a difference? Well, that's what I've been looking into a year on. What has actually changed? Let's start with social media. Now, here, I would say the impact has been very clear and palpable. Refugees Welcome is still being used as a slogan. Now it's been used 20 million times on just Twitter alone. A study from the University of Sheffield also noted a change in the language people are using about Syrians entering Europe. The language change is important because we had a huge debate here on the BBC too about you know whether we should use words words like migrant or refugee and when we should use them. And that study found the word refugee is now being used far more often than before. It's gradually replacing the word migrant. But does that translate into a real difference in the way the world thought about Syria and its war and its refugees? That is the question. So I spoke to Frank Duvel. He's a leading migration researcher from the University of Oxford. There's a shift in language online, right? And There is a shift in language which signals a shift in the sense of people's responsibility. Talking about refugees means acknowledging some responsibility for international protection, which the word migrant doesn't entail. Looking back one year later, what has actually changed for the lives of people like Alan Kurdi and his family? Well, around that time, we saw because of the rising attention, also a rise in the mobilization of people who started uh, rushing to the scene, to the Turkish beaches, to the Greek islands, to the Balkan route, and beginning to help people. So it certainly contributed significantly to mobilizing volunteers who made an enormous difference to the arrivals. So it seems Tima Kurdi's right, that her nephew's death did change something for Syrian refugees. But how big of a change was that? I think we can say that it's been associated with a surge in volunteering and online campaigning. But other statistics about the ongoing situation, they tell a darker story. Oxfam this week highlighted data that show the total number of refugees and migrants who've died while trying to reach another country has increased by more than a fifth in the last year, up from about 4,500 to well over 5,500. That's globally, but the vast majority of those deaths are on the Mediterranean. So it's not as if people in Syria or Syrians living in Turkey saw Alan Kurdi's death and decided to not make that journey into Europe? Well, interestingly, there has been, specifically in journeys from Turkey to Greece, there has been a marked decrease. But that may have more to do with a deal signed between Turkey and the EU to do with refugee settlement. So it's a year on. Did that photo change the world? Well, Frank Duvel, the academic I spoke to, I asked him to call it. And he said... Yes, it did change things. It bolstered interest, volunteering and campaigning. It contributed towards German policy, for example. Their message is that all of that tweeting isn't sort of lazy hashtag activism, that it does affect the debate on these issues. That said, though, most of the key realities around the situation have not changed. The war in Syria rages on. Refugees continue to stream out. We went back and spoke to Alan's aunt, Tima, uh, and her comments to the media have been trending hugely in the last 24 hours. Uh, Her huge optimism after her nephew's image first went viral has now ebbed away. The sad part, you know, it only took the the first few months probably and looks like everybody went back to business. 
since last year, if you tell me if there is a lot of changes, I will tell you it's, it's getting worse, it's not getting any better. It's about more people are fleeing uh, the war and uh, people are still dying, uh, people are still crossing, taking that journey in the water. The only message we should put out right now to urge our world leaders to sit down at the table and talk how we can end the war in Syria. Now, Alan Kurdi is not the only Syrian child whose image went viral. No, pictures do keep emerging and get widely shared. For example, two-year-old Omran Daknish, he survived a Russian bomb in Aleppo last month, and that image went viral. And emotion surges each time. But Tima Kurdi now feels these images are almost distracting us from a discussion on how to end the underlying conflict in Syria. When the image of Omar was there, it's really it's another image. It's a powerful image, a heartbreaking image. Every day, there is a thousand of children are dying. But the media can only take one picture. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. And thank you to all my guests this week, Ruha, Muckle, and a fond and final farewell to Anne-Marie Tomchak. Remember, you can get in touch by emailing trending at bbc.com. And if you see any trends that you think we should know about, then please let us know. We'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Join us then. <laughs>